Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halastic, and I'm co-founder of Financing Solutions. Over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range. And I can't tell you how important it is for businesses to have a line of credit so they can make an investment in their business or even for unexpected emergencies. Our line, of cr- our line of credit program is easy to get in place, inexpensive when used, and costs nothing to set up, making it a great cash backup plan. If you would like to learn more about our line of credit program, please visit us at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com, or give us a call at 862-207-4118. If you apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file that you can use when you actually use your line of credit. Just remember, the time to set up a line of credit is when you don't need it, so that when you do need it, it's ready to go. And com- coming from 25 years of experience, I would tell you that it is a smart move for an entrepreneur, for a business owner to have a line of credit in place. And because ours doesn't cost anything to set up, it really is kind of a no-brainer. Today, I am excited to be speaking with Andrew Hellman. Uh, uh, Andrew is the author of an international bestseller, Millionaire Teacher, built million-dollar portfolio on the school teacher salaries by the mid-30s, and is profiled on CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and writes for the Globe and Mail, Canada's national paper, as well as Asset, Asset Builder, as well as Swiss Code. Andrew, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Thanks very much for the, the invite, Stephen. I appreciate it. So the uh, today's topic, which is, you know, people, of course, listen to podcasts at all different times of the year. But, you know, in, right now, it's at the end of the year for 2001. I think almost as happy as we were to get rid of 2020. We're happy to get rid of 2021. But you know, this is a good topic that a lot of people start to really think a lot about at the end of the year, which is how to spend and invest for happiness, health, and wealth. Everyone's taking, not everybody, I know uh, I, I'm usually in the minority, uh, but this is usually the time of year when you're kind of taking inventory, let's say, of, you know, did you, do you like where you're headed? Do you want to continue your path? Do you want to make a change? Uh, so this is really a kind of a timely topic to me. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. And especially after, and I guess we're still really going through the COVID waves, the ups and downs of that. I think what it has done for a lot of people, it has reprioritized a lot of their, prioritized a lot of, uh, or had them look at different priorities. You know, what is it that actually gives people life satisfaction and, I think, too, one of the things that we were very aware of, especially when we went through periods where we were isolated from others, we couldn't socialize to the same extent, the recognition that happiness and life contentment really comes and hinges so much on our social connections with other people. And it's interesting when you're looking at uh, Harvard has has done an eight-decade, actually, it's continuing, it's an eight-decade-long study that is ongoing, that looks at life satisfaction and looks at what are the variables that allow people to feel like really good about who they are, happy, uh, 
and and generally speaking, the the one variable that sort of is is more influential than any other is the personal relationships component. So you know, as we get to the end of the year, we start looking at what are some of the things that we did well, and what are some of the things that we can improve. I think looking at that that big variable in the study and recognizing how life satisfaction hinges so much on relationships, and then knowing that perhaps some of us, all of us, can actually set goals. And we set goals, we often set academic goals or fitness-related goals or business-related goals. But then there's that aspect of the relationship side of things. Now, are we setting relationship-based goals? Because they're really important. So I, in your book that you wrote, is that something that you kind of are, are really driving home or is just a part of what you uh, kind of writing about? You know, it's, it's funny you ask that because typically, you know, as a personal finance writer, I'm someone who writes about, I write about money. So I write about investing it. And so that's what I did with, the, my, with my, my first book, Millionaire Teacher, and then with a, a second book that I wrote called Millionaire Expat. With this book, uh, which I called Balance, I wanted to redefine what it meant to be successful. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this was that people would often ask me, or they'd say to me, well, Andrew, you know, you're really successful. And what they were referring to, and the only thing they were referring to, was the monetary aspect, the financial aspect, being financially independent. And I would say, well, I, I, I think I am. However, I want to ask you how you're defining that right now. And so people would then mention the financial aspect and the financial aspect only. And it's a word we abuse, I think, in terms of how we define, like when we look at success, people will often say, you know, that, say that woman, she's really successful. She has her own business. She drives a Maserati. Her business is doing well and she's got a, a mansion on the hill. And and success based on that definition is really one-sided because when you look at what it is that we do, if you ask people like why they're doing something or why they're motivated to do anything, whether it's you know run around the block, start your own business, invest money, um, get an education, how you're treating or how you're you're raising your children, if you ask people why are you doing it that way or why are you choosing to do that? Ultimately, the responses will vary at first until you continue to dig with why. And then what you'll get is you'll get a consistency of responses. People will be talking about things like, like it, it makes me feel good. It, it fulfills me. Uh, it makes me feel safe. It gives me security. Every response will relate to life satisfaction. Every response. If you keep digging, every single response will relate to that. And so same thing with anything we do. Why'd you buy that car? I mean, ultimately, it's going to be a life satisfaction thing. And so then for me, I wanted to look at what is it? Like as a financial writer, I was drawing a lot of people who were, I think, overemphasizing the importance of money as a definition of success and perhaps not looking holistically at it. So by researching and writing the book Balance, that's what I wanted to bring into play to identify what are true success factors. So if you want to be holistically success, there's a balance that's required. You can have a, a billion-dollar company, and, and if your relationships are a wreck, research suggests you're not really going to be wholly satisfied. 
And so if everything we do is for life satisfaction, if the things that we try to do somehow, whether we're giving to charity, makes us feel good, makes us feel whole, makes us feel purposeful, we're spending money on something, ultimately, again, it boils down to how does it going to make us feel? Are we, are we satisfied? It's a life satisfaction question here. And so the idea that someone could have a billion-dollar company that thrives, yet if they have their relationships and or their health that's, that's, that's struggling or is poor, and I say their health, there's so many things that we can control about our health and, and so many things we can't, but if there are things, factors that they could control that they're not controlling, um, then I would deem that person not a success. So it doesn't matter how much money that business makes, that person holistically is not successful because they haven't maximized their life satisfaction. So this is what I really wanted to talk about in the book, Balance, sort of bringing this research into play and allowing us to look at the, a big picture holistically. You know, uh, if I asked a hundred of, so just so you know, since I was 21, I've had a life mission. Okay. And my life mission and my statement is, is it's all about balance. So, you know, I want to excel at, uh, at, at being healthy. Uh, I want to excel at, uh, being the best dad I can, being a good husband. I want to ex- uh, excel at uh, at uh, work. I want to excel at uh, uh, and, and excel isn't really the word I use. I, I just I want to be aware uh, of of how important. Uh, I also want to be a uh, continuous learning and giving back. And and so what you're talking about really has resonated with me for for decades. In that, um, I don't want to be one-dimensional, and quite honestly, a, a lot of men are, you know, the they all they care about is their work, and I think that that leaves a lot of people unsatisfied when they get into their midlife, and I think that's the definition, often of a midlife crisis, in that uh, people are like, "What am I doing this for?" and I never personally had that midlife crisis because I always had a good balanced lifestyle and kind of knew where my priorities were. Do you think that since you were so involved in the financial end that it took you a while to get to this idea that, you know, maybe money isn't everything and there's other things that make people happier or happy that I didn't realize? That's a good question. When people that don't know me would ask me <clears throat> about some of the choices that I was making that were financially perhaps not that smart. So, for example, we have a condominium in Victoria, British Columbia, that just sits vacant and we don't rent it out. So we're not getting any income. And people would say to me, but Andrew, you're the money guy. You're the guy who prioritizes money. You talk about money around the world. You write books about money. And I would say, no, 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 you've, got, you've actually got it wrong. I'm, uh, I'm too ambitious to think just about money. And so when I say I'm too ambitious to think just about money, I've always been lifestyle person first. And so for me, I wanted to figure out from a really early age uh, how to work as little as I could to live the best life that I could. So I wanted money to work for me so I wouldn't have to work as hard for money. And I know that, that that's actually quite rare among financially successful people. I think most of the financially successful people I meet, 
they start out with a perception that they'll have a balanced life. But gradually what ends up happening is they end up spending more and more time on their business or on their financial pursuits to the point where they start to drop some of these other balls. And these other balls are, are really important, arguably more important than just the financial aspect. You know, when we look at things in terms of what we're actually spending money on, you know, you ask people, why do you want more money? And you just, you just keep digging into asking that question, why? And I mean, invariably, again, they'll come up with this life satisfaction answer. But then when we look at research, research suggests that life satisfaction as it relates to income actually plateaus, doesn't only just plateau, it actually starts to head downward. And so this doesn't apply to everybody. So there's somebody listening to this right now who, you know, they may be taking a lot of money out of their business and they can, and they're doing really well financially. And they're saying, well, like, I'm really happy and I'm really balanced. And so absolutely, there are definitely people who earn a lot of money who are balanced and super successful on a, in a holistic sense. But based on research, there's an economist, um, David Blanchflower, who did a study on this and, and found that actually this was, sorry, this is a Purdue-based university study, a Purdue-based university study showing that it's kind of an, extend, an extension from what Richard Easterlin talked about in the Easterlin paradox, where he found that happiness and income increased to a point, then plateaued. And what the Purdue-based study found was that when we increase the income beyond that certain point on aggregate, so I'm using the words on aggregate, satisfaction actually takes a downward, downward drop. And that's not just in the United States. So that, that study was done in 132 different countries, which so wholly fascinated me. And so some of the theories behind this or the reasons, like why is it? Why is it that generally, and this is very general, of course, but why generally do people who earn $200,000 a year plus, why are they generally less satisfied and less happy than people that earn, say, $95,000 a year? And what the research suggests is that the possibility here is that, well, one thing we do know is generally speaking, the more we earn, the more we spend. And so when we're spending money, especially when we're spending money on material acquisitions, you know, like we're buying, we're upgrading our things. We're always upgrading our phones or upgrading our cars or upgrading our bathrooms. You know, when we're buying material acquisitions, when we ask, why are we doing it? People will say, well, I, I want to increase my life satisfaction. But the research suggests that material acquisitions actually don't enhance our life satisfaction. And I think a lot of people really lose sight of that. And so, you know, when you ask that great question about we're getting to the end of the year, what sort of things do we want to be looking at for 20 in 2020 to 2022 moving forward in terms of how perhaps we can allocate our money to best enhance our life satisfaction? Research suggested instead of buying more stuff or perhaps upgrading your car, the idea that you could rent, rent a cabin with some family members and, and a boat and you know, enjoy a week together, pay for that. Get a bunch of your extended family and instead of you buying a new car, pay for this. Uh, research suggests that by bringing people together like that and by giving and by creating an experience, and this is something that you'll, you'll talk about and become like part of your identity. And it's fun because if you think about it, it's quite simple. 20 years from now, Stephen, if you and I are sitting around with a bunch of friends, you're with a bunch of your friends, I'm with a bunch of my friends, we all get together around a campfire 20 years from now and we have like a, you know, a, a cool conversation into the night we're not going to talk about you know the the car we bought back in 2025 
we're going to bring up experiences, things we did, dumb things we did, fun things we did. And those stories are part of our identities. And so it's much the same with respect to pro-social giving, which I thought was pretty cool because you brought that up as a priority for you, actually helping other people, especially when you can see it. So research suggests that it increases our levels of life satisfaction when we give. But there's another element there. When we can see where that money is going, we actually see the results. That's a whole nother level. So again, when we're prioritizing, and again, it's not like necessarily um, a lot of people will think if they're not if they're not givers, they'll think, "Well, this is a sacrifice." You know, I'm going to have to sacrifice some of my own personal money. Uh, ironically, no, on a cellular level, it actually affects us in a positive way. It's like we're meant to do it. We're meant to be helpers. We're meant to be pro-social givers. So I think these are sort of uh, these are really cool things to think about when you're looking forward to 2022. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at like prior, I think what's really helped me a lot, a lot of people when they meet me and they get to know me, they they say, wow, he's really a, a, a balanced, well-adjusted person. You know, I I don't have a lot of hangups. I'm, I'm happy with, with my life. Uh, you know, I, um, I mean, I'm an ambitious person. Don't get me wrong. Uh you know, going back to what you're saying is I, I kind of, but there's something I wish I'd added to my priority list decades ago that you wrote, that you said, and I uh, I think you said it this way, but correct me, please. You said, how can I work less, but make more? Like, is that what you, is that what you had said before? Yeah, it's, it's what, you know, when I was first discovering financial literacy and I was really lucky. Uh, because I met somebody when I was 19 who was showing me you know, just something like, Here, here's how compound interest works. Yeah. And so if you start investing when you're young, you you can actually save less money than your friends over your lifetime and have more money. So the idea that, I, wow, okay, I, so I can save less over my lifetime and have more money. And as a result of having more money, I have more choice. So that those choices, depending on how I use those choices, will depend on how satisfied I'm going to be with life. So by using that money, the extra money to buy a bunch of stuff, isn't going to enhance my life satisfaction. But to use it to do certain things, like for me, I took sabbaticals, I took time off work, where I would explore and learn new things and travel the world. And I continue to do that, going to different places. Um, for me, that was a, a great allocation of that money. And everybody's going to have a different thing that they might want to be doing with that, with that money. But the money gives them that choice, which I think is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I don't know if I would add to my mission statement or if I would add it to my plan. Uh, but it, it really resonates with me right now because it's something that I'm really looking closely at right now. Um, you know, 57 years old, you know, you know. It was interesting. I had a mentor for 20 years who was just one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he had said this to me, like, I come from uh, a family that's very humble and uh, th uh, they're blue collared. They didn't go to college. And all they, you know, their goal, my parents' goal was that all three of their kids go to college. And we all did. Uh, and some of us got advanced degrees. And, and we're, we all did very well financially. And, uh, and then, and then, 
But what my mentor says, uh, says, okay, what happens in generations is you have what my parents did, which is they, their kids go to college, the kids who go to college in general uh, do well financially. And then what they do is they teach their kids the finer points of how to manage your money. And part of that is compound interest. And so like my son is one of my sons is 21. And when he came in the other day, I was showing him the power of compound interest. What I'm trying to say is I wish I had used that power of compound interest of putting money away of, of not having a, uh, not spending a lot of money uh, instead of my goal, which was building companies. Like it was always about the top line with me and never the bottom line. And so, you know, having or reprioritizing your priorities now makes a huge difference in your satisfaction 10 years, 20 years from 30 years from now. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it can. I mean, unfortunately, none of us have a working time machine. But, yeah. you know, we are where we are right now, and none of us are going to be younger than we are today. Yeah. And so that idea that – and that's a great way to think about it. Like, none of us – you're going to be – you're younger now than you'll ever be. And so the idea is, you know, let's, set, let's say the priorities are, are not aligned, or you want to be doing something a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Start, start now. There's no better time than the present to start. Yeah. Well, you know, you've traveled a lot. I know you've lived in a lot of different places. I know you live in Panama or you're in Panama, not living in Panama right now. Um, what, with all that travel, what have you learned about other cultures, attitudes toward happiness? That's, a, that's, that's such a good question because – I've recognized that so much of the research that I looked at was or paralleled the anecdotal observations that I made. So I'll give you an example. I could be in India and in the villages, I would hear laughter among the poor, loads of laughter. And then in the cities among the poor, I didn't hear that laughter. And I wondered why. And equally poor, one of the things that research has, for me, unveiled is that happiness relative, or happiness is relative to income as it relates also to our neighbors. So I did talk about like an income satiation point, but there's a point at which happiness ends up plateauing and then drops. But if we earn $300,000 a year and we're living amongst people that earn $700,000 a year, it actually affects us. It triggers the old FOMO inside us. And that affects us on a cellular level. It actually makes us less happy. And research done at the University of Stirling in the UK suggested that we don't live as long, which is really, really interesting. So this is why you, know, you asked that question about the traveling and what did I see? I would see people who were living in, in the mountains of Thailand or mountains of India who were poor, but laughing a lot. They were spending a lot of time together. They were enjoying themselves, but there was no one driving by in a Ferrari. 
And so that I think was one of the things that I really learned when going to these different countries and seeing different cultures. And, and if you look hard enough, you'll be able to see the same kinds of things in your home country. You don't necessarily have to travel far away to actually see this. But that was something that was really interesting for me, Stephen, to note, notice on an anecdotal level and then just actually see the research behind that. So how do we make this practical for people? Well, I know some people feel like they don't have a feeling that they've really made it until they move into a specific neighborhood. Like if I can, if I can buy a house in that neighborhood, then I feel like I've really made it. But being able to afford a mortgage for a home is one thing, you know, but actually feeling like you belong in that neighborhood and you're comfortable there and you just feel free and have that ability to just be you is an entirely different thing. So the idea that you might be earning you know, $500,000 a year, but if you move into a neighborhood where most people are earning seven or $800,000 or more, this is actually going to, on aggregate, uh, it affects people negatively. And I think that's really worth worth thinking about when people aspire to, well, I, I really want a house up there. Well, maybe you really don't. <laughs> it's not the right thing for you. Yeah, there was a, there's a book that I reference a lot. I read 20 years ago. Well, even maybe, uh, maybe longer it was, huh, maybe 20, uh, called The Paradox Principle. And so I'm going to give you a test. Now, uh, uh, what are the two happiest countries in the in the world? This is a, according to a report that was done twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, it would have been Bhutan and Costa Rica. Yeah, okay, uh, so those are you know those are great uh, Bhutan because they had the gross happiness. Uh, didn't they do the gross happiness product uh, since set of GDP? They did GHP. Yeah, that's is that, right. Was that- Good. Good memory, yeah. exactly. I, well, I was just actually reading about that. I was telling my son about that. But, um, you know, because I think a lot of people in the United States are really questioning, have been questioning what happiness is. You know, I think people in the United States, you know, United States is such a young country <laughs> that I kind of feel like the European countries have had a long time to figure out how happiness not that they're the happiest. The happiest number one was at the time Colombia, and number and the second one was Scandinavian countries. Mm. And the researchers said that when they did the analysis as to why in this Colombia uh, at the time things are so challenging there for the people living there that they have no expectations, so they just. All they care about is being close to their family. Mm. And it's a very tight knit family. And that great brings builds a lot of satisfaction. They don't have like going back to what your analysis was they don't have to uh, compete with the Joneses like they do in the United States. And then the Scandinavian countries is because uh, people feel connected to one another. That connection is what makes people happy. So that was the analysis of those those countries. And of course, at the time, the United States was like 26 on the list for happiness. And so, you know, if you talk to somebody who really doesn't, you know, you know, the United States is made up of a lot of immigrants. And of course, a lot of immigrants are 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 
are coming here because they want an opportunity to make money because they really didn't have that where they were coming from. Right. You know, it creates a culture and that culture continues because then they raise kids who, you know, who they tell money is the number one most important thing and priority. It's really you know, interesting you, you bring that up, Stephen. In, in, in my book, Balance, I, I brought up the example of a town called Rosetto in Pennsylvania. Hmm. And, and it was a medical marvel. Yeah, I know about it. 50s, 60s, and 70s, because people lived so, so freakishly long in Rosetto. Yep. So, you know, they tested the water, they, tested, they looked at the foods, and the water was the same as it was anywhere else. The foods they ate weren't great. There were people that smoked. But they'd come over from, from Sicily like a couple of hundred years before they'd settled there and they brought with them the Italian customs of the old Italian customs where open door policy, you know, your kids are in my house, my kids are in your house. We're kind of all together raising this community and, you know, we're eating together. We're celebrating together. They had 26 or 22 civic uh, community clubs for a town of like 2,500 people, which was phenomenal. But what ended up happening was, in the 1980s, I'll back up just a little bit too. If you had money, like if you had more money than your neighbors, it was considered a bit of a taboo. Culturally, they didn't want to build a better home than their neighbors, even if they could afford it. It was, it was distasteful. It was considered distasteful if you bought a car that was a lot better than your neighbors just because you could afford it. So you know, the idea that maybe it'd make your neighbor feel bad or feel jealous. So it was this real communal feel. And then in the 80s, when some of the younger people got the sense of the American dream, they started to build bigger houses, move further away from that, that central town nucleus, uh, buy better cars, exercise less because they weren't walking back and forth to the bakery or to each, other's, to each other's homes. They would be driving at that point. And soon, it didn't take all that long before the people in Rosetto had the same mortality rate as people in any other typical American town. So it, it affects us on the cellular level. So not just the level of, of, of happiness and contentment, but actually affects us biologically, which is so interesting. So let's, let's, uh, uh, let's kind of bring it home, right? Let's, you know, definitely, I think both you and I know some of the subject matter pretty well. How can people actually implement it? So, so what are we saying here? What is something that you can do? You could say, all right, going into 2022, what is one of, one of the priorities that you would say is something that people should really consider? You know, when you're looking at, say, a business, you're setting smart goals, right? So specific goals that are measurable, um, that are achievable and that are time sensitive. We should do the same things with some of these things that will truly enhance our life satisfaction. So of course we can set those smart goals for our business and for our finances, but to set them for some of these other things like experiential pur purchases that bring people together, that would be one uh, setting a very specific goal for pro social giving to help other people out. These are things that I think are huge. And then, of course, setting pro-social goals for or setting goals for our health as well. And so, you know, you sound like the sort of person, as am I. We've just already established habits with respect to our health, getting outside. We like to do outdoor activities. 
But some people, although they might start out like that, they lose their way a little bit because they get so busy. But you, but you can't afford to be that busy because you have one vessel. You just have one body. And the idea is that we need to really nurture it to the best of our ability. So, yeah, I think setting those smart goals that are, you know, setting that business-oriented mindset towards some of these other factors that will enhance our life satisfaction, I think is a really, really good strategy for people to do for the upcoming year. Yeah, I'll share with you a story that happened to me uh, 10, 15 years ago. At the time, my my priorities were uh, uh, family, uh, work, health. And then I had always had the other ones, which were continuous learning and giving back, right? And so, uh, you know, every year, this time of year, I look, I relook at my, uh, my mission statement. I look at my priorities and my goals for the year and look, look back and see how I did against my other, uh, my prior goals. And I looked at my priorities and I said, you know what? It's not really right. And I said, first, health needs to go up front because I'm not going to be any of any use to my family. I'm not going to be good at my job if I don't take good care of my health. And so what it did was it also changed my day because I mean, I'm somebody who loves to be outdoors or exercise. I'd like to be in really good shape. Um, so when I would either the night before or that morning, the first thing I thought about it wasn't work or wasn't getting the kids to school. Well, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but uh, it was, what am I going to do today or tomorrow about exercising? That was my priority. It wasn't, well, what am I going to get done at work today? It, was, it wasn't anything else. It was that's so that's always a priority. The second thing of, 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 of um, family, that's a no brainer. Everybody knows that their family always comes first, but the third one, it was work. And the thing that's interesting is, through years of observation, if your work is going well, it, your life tends to go well. <laughs> but if your work isn't going well, it affects all the other things that are not going well. I just mean if you have a business, um, if you have a career, that type of thing. Um, so although it's third on the list, it could take over your whole list. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's just the reality of it. Um, you know, I think maybe sometimes I can sit there and I can say, you know what, things are going bad right now at work, but I have all these other things that are going good or it's not going to take over my life right now. And maybe it's just a matter of, you know, recognizing that work isn't everything, you know, when you own your business, it, it's, it's everything, right? If you let it, right? If you let it take it over, and you know everyone who's been in business long enough knows that that's what happens. And uh, what, what's your comment in regards to those things? Yeah, I think I think sometimes of we don't set out for something to be all consuming, but it uh, often ends up becoming all consuming. Your priorities are are one hundred percent bang on, one hundred percent right. I think about that uh, that parable about the frog. And the the pot of water that's on the stove is yeah, yeah. warm up, right? And the frog's just chilling and actually enjoying the water temperatures getting a little bit warmer. Um, 
if you'd ask that frog, hey frog, you know, would you ever sit in a pot of boiling water until you actually boiled yourself to death? The frog, if the frog could speak, would say, you freaking got to be kidding. But, um, you know, with the parable, of course, the frog starts to enjoy it a little bit more, becomes like a hot tub, the frog gets lazy, and eventually the frog's just so wasted, so tired, can't actually get out and, and boils itself to death, or it boils to death. That in itself is just a parable. It won't actually happen if you try that with a frog. <laughs> People have, it's like, wait, that's just a story. But it's a good story as it relates to just the idea that we can end up getting sucked into something that ends up potentially destroying destroying us if we, or at least if it doesn't destroy us, maybe that's a little bit too strong a word to be using, but um, definitely jeopardizes some, or can definitely jeopardize some of the things that you talked about as main priorities, like health and family. And we all can say family is our priority. I've asked a friend, what's your priority? You know, we had this long walk. Um, we were on an island uh, in, in Malaysia, and I spent a, a couple of days with this guy who was a head of a corporation. And I asked him, like, what are your priorities? Like, tell me what your number one priority is. And he says, well, it's my family, of course. Like, everyone's, everyone's priority is their family. It should be if they have a family. And I said, yeah, good. So then I started asking him how he allocates his time. Yeah. And yeah. it was really interesting because eventually, by just me continuing to ask him these questions, he came to this realization that, holy smokes, uh, he's not really spending. And I didn't come out and say, you know, and I, I knew. I knew he was a workaholic. I knew. I knew it was really hard for him, for me to get him on this actual trip with me. Uh, I knew he worked his butt off, and I knew it wasn't it wasn't healthy. I knew he didn't spend as much time, perhaps, with people he loved as he should. But he said it was his priority until I started asking him those questions, and then he realized, "Wow!" Without me actually saying it. And again, that's this thing that's just this creep, isn't it? It's this gradual creep. He didn't start out like that, but it can start to take control. So I like that idea of you know when you say you, you know you're looking at what your priorities are at the beginning of the year or whatever point in time, you just you you just reassess, you realign, and you refocus on what really matters. Yeah, I think, and I think that the issue is, is that's what, you know, what happens to a lot of people, they get so much into the weeds uh, that they can't, they don't get out of the weeds to take time to think and to reflect. And I think that's, that what, that's what causes somebody to not, um, uh, to be aware of, you know, how their life really is. You just get so busy doing, and that's the problem with the business, you know, a small business owner, you know, which is like, you know, really anything under, you know, 5 million, uh, in revenue, it, the owner is doing, wearing a lot of hats. They're doing a lot of things and you can't really pick your head up to look at, wait a minute here, you know, oh, you know, should I really be doing this? You know, should I be delegating it? Should I, should we have productivity that, that through technology? You know, why am I doing this? And, you know, it's, it's a lesson you learn the longer you're a business owner that you need to be able to strategize, not just about business, but about your life. And the only way you can do that is if you're not digging in the weeds and, uh, and believe me, I've been, you know, so I'm 57. I, I've had been doing this for over 25 years, owning my own company. I've been 57 years of life. I still struggle with getting too much into the weeds and not thinking, you know, strategically. And um, 
So if you know if you let it, your business pulls you back in. You know, the other thing I want to say too, I, I never tell the, told any of my listeners, um, I'm a practicing Buddhist. And um, and one of the things that um, I learned that was an observation, it wasn't through Buddhism, it was actually through a translation that sometimes uh, Buddhism, when it's translated, is translated incorrectly. But think about getting word of the, get, getting rid of the word word happiness, and use the word content. Mm-hmm. Yes, because happiness ha- is fleeting, isn't it? It's a moment. It is. Time. Yeah, it's a little too intense. It is. Like you know, like they. I and I think I heard this too from from an article I had read that people say, you know, in the United States, everyone wants to be happy, 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 happy. Yes. He goes, you know, we just want to just other parts of the world, they just kind of want to live their lives. And I came up with the idea that now I try not to use the word happiness. I try to use the word or happy. I use the word content. Am I content? And it takes the edge off a little bit. I think of the extremeness of, I got to be happy. I got to be happy. And uh, it's just a suggestion that kind of works, I think, well for me. I like it because, I mean, happiness is, and Daniel Kahneman, the behavioral economist, says this really well, too. He says, happiness in itself is fleeting. It's a fleeting moment. It's a, it's a little rush. And we can't be happy all the time. And we can beat ourselves up if we're not, we think we should be. So, you know, this is really one of the reasons why, obviously, I put happiness in my title. But within the book Balance, I'm perpetually talking about life satisfaction. So I try to talk, let's talk life satisfaction, which is, which is generally that level of contentment, isn't it? Uh, really interesting. I, I wanted to ask you this question now. Um, do you regularly meditate? Yeah, I, uh, I, I actually struggle a little more with meditation than I do with uh, uh, the answer is no. Um, and I keep trying to get more and more back to it. I do spend a lot of time reflecting. So I go for walks and I don't listen to music and I do that type of thing. I've gone through phases. I've been a Buddhist since I was 30, but in the last several years I've gotten really involved in it. What I, one of the things I I have is I have a really great, um, I I would say the way I use Buddhism is to really help do self-improvement and, um, and to become a better person. And the tools in Buddhism are just perfect for that. Um, so I, I, I want to meditate more. I just struggle with getting as much out of it as I really like. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, I, I know it's a huge part of Buddhism and I've done I've done phases where I've been really great about it, and I've done other times like right now where I, I haven't. So that that's the the honest answer. That those quiet moments though, where you are going for a walk, you're in nature, and you're not listening to music, uh, or you're not yes. listening to a podcast, you're not listening to the radio show. Those are the moments when you will get a lot of the benefits of meditation yeah there's different types of meditating so there's there's meditating where you're just working on clearing your mind right and and really staying focused and a lot of times i'll do that meditation by imagining a candle uh 
with fire blowing in, in the wind. And I just try to stay as focused as on that candle as I can. And that's a, that's the, really the real form of meditating because you are trying to practice not getting distracted, number one. So, but any incredible meditative practitioner tells you that the key is your mind will get distracted, but you have to recognize it. And you, it, one of the practices is recognizing how to get it back on track. Right, right. Right. And so that's a big part of meditating. So the problem with my you know, it's called a monkey mind. Your mind is always going all over the place, right? And so through meditation, you, you should be able to do a better job of that not happening as often. And then there's another meditation, which is about contemplating a, a serious problem or emotion. And one of the keys with Buddhism is being able to recognize how you feel so that you don't go into a bad area. So a big part of Buddhism is not getting angry. It's really very destructive. It's the original reason why I got into Buddhism because my wife had introduced me to it. And she said, you know, I know you struggle with this and you you always get, you get angry and then you get upset at yourself because you got angry. She said, you know, at the age of 30, she said, you might be interested in Buddhism. And I fell in love with it at the time. And then there's the third type, which is what you're talking about. And that is when you're going for like a walking meditation in nature. And what they found is nature has a way of, of stopping you from going into uh, depressions. That the birds and the air and the being near trees and being outdoors it seems to have an effect bringing us back to uh, when we weren't living in huge houses and uh, when we were just being part of the world and we've lost that. So getting us back to our Buddha nature, it's called. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so those are the, the th three forms. I feel hypocritical in saying that I'm a practicing Buddhist, which I really am. I mean, I really uh, I work hard at it every single day and every single week. I'm in a great Buddhist group that I love. And, um, and yet I don't practice meditation as much as I want to. Um, but I've had something serious that went on in my life. My wife passed away a couple of months ago, unexpectedly. And, um, you know, things are a little out of whack and meditation hasn't really helped me right now. So that's the first time I ever told any of our listeners something that serious went on in my life. So Wow. Wow. I'm really sorry to hear that. Thank you. And I suppose, I think the tools that you have, though, I think the tools that you have are going to serve you well. It has. Um, what's interesting is it's made me, um, and every, a lot of my friends who know me have said the exact same thing. They said, I'm well equipped to handle this terrible situation. And, um, and it's true. And just so you, uh, everybody knows that's out there, the, when something terrible like this happens, um, you become more compassionate toward other people because you realize what other people go through and you never knew it. 
you know, listen, losing an adult, an adult uh, a mother or father, I'm sorry, losing a parent when they're in their 90s, which I know what that's like, right, is completely different than losing a child or losing a, a loved one unexpectedly. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a spouse unexpectedly, completely different. And, uh, and when you've gone through that, and I'm still going through it, you, you realize, wow, this is a part of the world, the part of a human race that I never knew anything about. And you feel compassion toward other people because we're all, you know, not to get too intense here uh, in Buddhism, we're all, I'll, I'll keep it simple. We're all struggling. We're all, we all have problems and we need to give everybody a break. We need to give everybody a little patience. And so um, the Buddhism practice has really helped me with that. But also, um, you know, the death of my wife has just made me more human. So uh, maybe that is something I think that people can look at their list of priorities. And it's a lot of what we were just saying today, Andrew, that you were saying, which is get more involved with people. That seems to be the key. Have more friends, go out with people, enjoy people's company, talk. It seems to be, it seems to be the key. Yeah, it's the, it's the only thing, you know, when uh, Ronnie Ware was a palliative care nurse who wrote a book called The, the Regrets of the Dying. And she would ask people in palliative care, like, what is it that you regret? And nobody regretted the fact that they didn't buy something or reach a certain point in their career. The regrets were all relationship-based. Uh, and I think to that wisdom that, that you're expressing with the compassion that we have to have for other people, because we, we don't know what's going on in anyone's life. And so that, that idea that if somebody does something to you, then they speak to you sharply or they do something unfair or you, you, you judge it as, as mean or nasty. I think the idea that we don't know what's going on with that person in their life right now or what has gone on with them in the past. Maybe they're consistent like this. Well, what are the reasons for that? And we just have to thank the lucky stars that whatever has perhaps, if it's something that was permanently damaging to them as a child, we just have to be thankful, loving, and forgiving. Because it's so true. You're, you're absolutely right with respect to that compassion. We can't really know what other people are going through. So we, we really should, to the best of our ability, give compassion to other people and, and recognize that. Yeah, and I, if if I want to drive the point home even further, and then we got to wrap this up. It's uh, but it's um, if you can't, if you don't want to do it for somebody else, do it for yourself. And what I mean by that is is give someone what what's the first thing you do when you get you know when you're who pays the price when you're angry at somebody? Right, right. We do. You. We do, yes. yes you yes. pay the price. <laughs> yeah, we right? carry it. We carry it. You carry yeah. it. So <laughs> don't go there. Be selfish, 
Okay. Right. That's and, a good point. Good. You know, and that's the way I look at it. I say, you know, do I really want to tell this person what I think of them right now? Because <laughs> I will pay the price for a week. Right. Yeah. And um, so, you know, that's be selfish and, and listen, it is a terrible time in the United States right now. It's not because of COVID. <laughs> it, it is because everybody is angry and they're at each other's throats. And it's just, it's not a good time to, you know, be an American. It really isn't. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is, I can't tell you how many of my, my friends, people I know, you know, are like, really questioning if the United States is a place where they should live. You know, they're really unhappy yeah. and it's not, it's, it's cross it, other than people who think the United States can't do anything wrong. I'm, I'm talking across the political divide. People are really unhappy. And so we all, you know, you, you know, giving everybody a break and listening is, is something that we need to kind of do more of. Yeah, I think you nailed it right there when you said give everybody a break and to listen. Because we learn when we listen. We don't learn when we speak. Yeah. We relate or we give ourselves a chance, an opportunity to relate when we're listening and we're ready to learn. Because we have far more in common than we have uh, opposed oh, yeah. views. We have so much in common, um, all of us. And to point out where we disagree and to focus too much on that isn't productive for us on a personal level, nor is it productive for us on a national level. But I think that it starts with each individual. So I, each I individual, yeah. if we recognize that, and so listeners, you're listening to the idea that we all, we, none of us are perfect, but we recognize that, we try to be the best people that we can be. That's how you build a nation, It's or that's how you that, that, that's how you facilitate growth in any nation. Now, when, I, when I'm talking about growth, I'm really talking about like a holistic sense of it. I'm not talking about GDP. You know, I'm talking about that holistic sense of, of betterment for a society. And we're all in that process, aren't we? We're all, every country is on that process. But it's really good for us to remember on an individual level because that's all we can control, be the best that we can be. Yep, let's leave it off of that. Um, I would really like to thank so very much Andrew Hellman uh, for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, you could call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Andrew, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Thanks for asking. I have a website at andrewhallam.com, and that's where my my book will be there on the very front. Uh, the book is called Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth. So uh, it's available in bookstores on January 18th, and it's available online at all online retailers for pre-order now. Great. Um Andrew, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, listening to what you had to teach us as well. And I, I wrote things down that I really thought I could, uh, you know, add to my mission statement. I hope everybody else did as well. 
And uh, if if our listeners are interested in getting a new business ideas, I tweet daily lessons for, uh, on, about lessons for business owners. It isn't always about business, um, but my my handle is at s halasnik. It's s h a l a s n i k. And so, just to wrap it up, I want to thank all our listeners for listening. Um, and let's you know the takeaway today is don't worry what everybody else is doing, just make the changes that you want that you think make make things better for yourself and the world um, and your community and your family. It all starts with you. And so make the changes and, and, you know, be content, right? That was the big theme for today. I think uh, the biggest part of our lives is we all want to be content. So everybody have a fantastic day. <laughs>